Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. A elected DNC member from the state of Missouri. And I stand today to ask you to vote uh, to not remove Resolution 4 from the packet because we need to understand that there is intersectionality with climate change. All right? We need to get that people are losing their homes because of climate change, and that causes crime. That causes gun violence. That causes health care. Thank you, Curtis. We're going to tackle this issue, and we need your help. Leave it next. So, in your opinion, and because I, I feel the same way, they kept bringing up these other issues as if there's some sort of idea that we can't care about multiple issues at the same time. Exactly. I don't understand why they thought that's an argument against this. Especially when uh, climate change is impacting and creating, causing a lot of the other issues that we're seeing. Gun violence um, could be because uh, of immigration issues that were caused from global, global warming or, or famine or climate or uh, wildfires. And, and the fact is, all of these things are important. And everybody knows that. Everybody in the Democratic Party agrees with that or should agree with that. They're extremely important. Um, to the point where I, I would call them an existential threat as well. Right. But if we don't have a planet, none, none of it makes matters. any no. difference. None of it matters. It, if right. the planet's on fire, all the special interest groups in the world, all the, the, the uh, uh, you know policies that you care about go away. They go away. All of a sudden we're in a water world or we're in a Mad Max dystopian future. Right now is when we need to, if we're going to put our finger on the scale of anything, it is trying to get the debate out there, trying to get change to be made on climate debate, on the climate change. And you're from Kansas, right? I'm from Missouri. Oh, Missouri, yeah. Curtis so, Wilde from Missouri. I'll get a plug in there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so now, what I also was kind of taken aback by was, I think Christine Pelosi's point during the resolution committee hearing was that we should be doing this about multiple issues, and yeah. why can't we do and that? why can't we? Why can't but they shut that conversation down, yeah. so now they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah, and this is the supposedly the uh, supreme governing body of the Democratic Party, right. and we, we can't evolve. Yeah. We can't evolve. We can't evolve ourselves, yeah. our own rules. Our own, why can't we be fluid? Um, when I, I guarantee you, the, the, uh, the I think Jim Zogby was making that point uh, that morning, and was yeah, he as well? Yeah, like we, we are we the DC, the why can't we, we make We can change them, yeah, right? And, and so what I don't do understand why there's so much pushback just to allow them to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I don't get it either. Yeah, so where's there that There should be going? no controversy. I don't, I'd like to know. I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. I mean, it. perhaps uh, maybe oil companies that buy well, advertising. Well, a lot of them are lobbyists that are uh, saying no to this. I know that. But I'm also being told, and I think Jim made a really good point on this when I talked to him, is a lot of it, it's not necessarily only the lobbyists per se, and it may not even be uh, the biggest part of it. It's the fact that there's so many consultants, like with those five, I think he said, consulting groups that are basically taking all the DNC money. Well, to shift gears, and yes, there's definitely um, things, financial reasons going on, you know what I mean? Yeah. But look at something like labor. Uh, I heard the labor question uh, on the other side. 
Uh, and the fact is, if we're going to tackle climate change on the level and the scale that we need to, yeah. labor is going to have to be a huge part of that because this is going to be a, a generational change um, that, that is going to create millions of good jobs because now that's going to be our focus instead right. of never-ending war that's sometimes created from famine or flooding uh, or, or uh, wildfires that are caused by climate change. Right. So it all comes back to climate change in many respects. Oh, and people, so more people need to get that and, and at least let uh, the debate happen. Absolutely. At the very, very least, it's let the debate happen. Today we're talking with Curtis Wild, who is a professional wrestler and a DNC member from Missouri. Welcome, Curtis. Hi, how are you? I'm good, and I'm really um, quite excited to speak with you because I want to go through some of the stuff that happened at the DNC summer meeting uh, last week, or I guess almost two weeks ago now. Uh, one of the things that we witnessed was the way in which the DNC struck down the climate change debate discussion. Now, there were several resolutions that were coming through the Resolutions Committee on climate change, and there, I think there was like 52 total that they were looking at. But there was one in particular that uh, many constituents felt was really important, and that was asking for a climate change debate. And the reason they thought it was important is because currently the, DN currently the DNC sanctions the debates and presidential candidates cannot do unsanctioned debates, otherwise they get penalized. And if they want to participate in something that's not sanctioned, it has to be a forum or a town hall, which means only one candidate is on the stage at a time. And this is not really great for voters because then voters don't really get to see an actual debate between the candidates where they're questioned and counterchecked and all of these sorts of things. So there is a marked difference. So what did you feel about that entire thing that went down? I know you spoke on the floor when it got to the general session on Saturday, but you were also present in the room on uh, Thursday when it was being discussed in the resolutions committee. Right, right. Um, well, I mean, out of the, the 57 that were discussed at the resolutions committee, uh, Few of them were, were really important. One of them was, I believe, Resolution 30, which was to form a, a climate um, council within the DNC, um, which I'm not sure exactly what work will be done with that. I'm interested to see. Uh, hopefully, uh, something good will come out of that. The other two were Resolution 4 and Resolution 5. Uh, Resolution 5 called for a straight-up debate, climate change debate. Uh, with all the candidates on the same stage, and that got struck down fairly handily. Uh, the wording of Resolution 4, however, was able to get it through the Resolutions Committee. They passed it, uh, and that was for a climate change, a DNC-sponsored climate change town hall with the candidates able to be on the same stage at the same time and engage each other, and that was the wording. Um, and once that work got around, because we just changed the, basically changed the word, uh, debate to town hall, once it got around that it was still the same thing between Thursday and Saturday, uh, there was uh, a lot of, uh, attempts to derail it and to get it knocked off of the resolution packet that we would be voting on on that Saturday. 
and they were successful. So uh, one uh, of the things I noticed that morning in the resolutions committee hearing was that they weren't letting people in and these meetings are supposed to be open to the public. Uh, the capacity of that room was close to 2,000 or over 2,000, and there was maybe, what, 200 people present? What gives yeah. you that? Well, um, they had a, from what I understand, they had a certain amount of guest uh, credentials mm-hmm. that they were allowed to give out, and once those guest credentials were given out, that was the limit. Um, and they say that it was the capacity, but as you saw, as you just mentioned, um, the capacity could have handled a whole lot more. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My wife was actually uh, one of the, the victims, I should say, of the uh, fact that they had so limited, such a limited amount of uh, guest credentials mm. because she unfortunately got there after the Sunrise Movement and they had already got all the guest credentials. Right. Uh, and she was unable to get the guest credentials for about the first half of uh, the first day and uh, the morning of the second day. Finally, I was able to get her a, a special guest credential, but, um, yeah, they, they were very stringent on the people that could be in the room, mm-hmm. uh, and it was noticed. It was noticed. <laughs> yeah, I did. It was definitely noticed. And just to um, let you know, when I was getting my press badge, this was uh, maybe 15 minutes before 8 o'clock in the morning, so it was quite early. They were already turning people away. So they didn't even, they're, they're not even all the Sunrise people, like maybe, I don't know, 20 of them got badges. I, there was literally no one in the room. It was ridiculous. Um, it's funny looking. Yeah, you know, and I have to say, to me, this is, I feel very strongly, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I do feel very strongly that they do this on purpose. Democracy dies in the dark, and the Democratic Party isn't entirely democratic in it, the way it functions. I don't think that much is going to happen at those types of events that isn't planned to orchestrate. Right. No, you're right. It's pre-orchestrated, and in fact, um, I won't call out any names, but I did speak with somebody who is, used to be on the ex, ex-com committee, and he said that the DNC had already let the, the those in charge, I'm assuming he means Tom Perez, et cetera, had already let them know that he didn't want this climate change debate thing to come out of a resolution. So, oh, yeah, what's interesting is they, for me personally, is they wouldn't allow my wife to have guest credentials. However, in the DNC mailings that they send out to members, mm-hmm. um, there was a, an RSVP form in there, a guest form. Uh, and she actually RSVP'd as a guest hmm. weeks before. Yeah, it um, doesn't make sense, does so, it? And those are emails that go out to the general public. Right. Right. They're not, yeah. That's kind of strange. So, yeah. you know, is this, in your opinion, is this just internal corruption? Uh I, I think that there's a whole lot of uh, corruption going on in politics. I don't know if I would be as bold as to say that it's internal corruption. Um, I, I think it's politics. Okay. <laughs> I, I think, that, you That's know, fair. when you when you get money involved is when, uh, you know, people get corrupt. But um, they, they just know the game better than some of us newer members, yeah. and they know how to play it. Um, and uh, it's just them, them using the rules to their advantage. Yeah, that's politics. And it seems to me that their desired outcomes 
aren't the same as what their constituents are. They're more concerned about the corporate donors and actually donors in general. Um, you know, like one of the things I noticed on the floor debate on Saturday during the general session was the first person that spoke um, to vote yes. And if you vote yes, that meant you were uh, striking down the climate change resolu- or resolution number four. Uh, was Maria Cardona, and she's a lobbyist for Dewey Square Group, and she represents fossil fuel. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I'm Maria Cardona. I'm a DNC member from Washington, D.C., and I couldn't agree more with my colleague from Washington State about how important climate change is to the whole party. I don't think anyone is here to disagree with that. That is absolutely the case. What I believe is that we don't need a specific debate on climate to make sure that everyone in the country understands that the Democratic Party is the one who will take the the mantle on climate change and make sure that we have a fix fix on it. I am a mother. I have a 12-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old son. I want to make sure that they're able to have clean water to drink and are able to breathe in 20 years. But I got to tell you, I don't need a specific focused climate debate in a, at the expense of a debate that I would also want on immigration, that I, will, I would also want on white supremacy, that I would also want on the economy. I don't need a specific climate debate to tell me which candidate is going to be best suited to deal with this existential crisis. Do you know who the best candidate is going to be to deal with the existential crisis? The Democratic nominee. So you cannot possibly tell me that her goal isn't to uh, support her clients. I mean, this is just like, how is this? That's actually, you illuminated that for me because I was actually getting messages saying, hey, that's a fossil fuel lobbyist. Yeah. Uh, And I wasn't sure who they were talking about. Uh, they were talking about Maria Cardona. Um, there, so um, I actually did some research work a few years back during the Unity and Reform Commission because I was chasing down what members of the DNC were lobbyists because um, I really wanted to get into the where the dirty politics were coming from. You know, and every Clinton appointee on the Unity and Reform Commission uh, was a lobbyist, every single one of them. 
And so I think the DNC has a history now of, you know, and a lot of these folks, like I've had them give me business cards, like DNC members give me business cards. And the business card is exactly the same as the lobbying firm that they're with. They're on the same exact card. So they don't even have any embarrassment over that. They don't see the problem. And I think that might be uh, the real issue here is the fact that they don't see a problem. And I think uh, Dr. Jim Zogby's point when he said, you know, are we puppets? We are the DNC. We decide, you know, your constituents are asking you to hear them and you're not listening, you know, and I think he was right on that. But who the hell decided it? Who was the DNC who decided it? Nobody here decided it. We never had a discussion at a DNC meeting about how we would decide it. Are we props to be managed or are we the deciding body of the party? I think that there's a lot of that going on within the Democratic Party, unfortunately, because... Uh, they want to steer the ship instead of letting the people steer the ship. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're going to run ashore, if, if you keep battling over the uh, steering wheel, you know, they're seemingly, in certain respects, they're going out of their way to uh, fuck the people that vote for them or should be voting for them uh, based on our platform, because our platform is extremely progressive, about 80% full-on progressive. Yeah. No, you're right. And if we follow our platform and do what we tell people we're going to do through our platform, then those people would vote for us, and we wouldn't have lost a thousand seats in ten years. Mm-hmm. I think um, you're right. So yeah, I, I do think that there's definitely some uh, financial interests going on because they feel like they have to move towards the center. They feel like they have to appease the moderate, corporate-friendly crowd. Uh, mm-hmm. because those are the big donors. But people like me, who may not have a whole lot of money, if you're speaking my tune, if you're singing my song, I'm going to send you what I can. Right. I agree. And if you get a million of me and I send $3, you got $3 million. Yeah, you can you know? definitely make so up. You were, can make up for the money if you walk away from the corporate money from the grassroots. I think you're totally 100 percent correct on that. And I think the other side benefit is these are the people that knock on doors. So when you walk away from the corporate yeah. money and you get the small donations, you're also getting an army of activists that are really going to go out there and fight for the cause. And they're goddamn going to show up to vote. I mean, the last election cycle, 2016. They really hurt themselves by alienating all those voters because they didn't come out and vote. They absolutely hurt themselves by alienating those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even in Missouri in 2018, uh, after 2016, I, I was a DNC member. Um, I got elected June 18, 2016. And around the winter time, Claire McCaskill had a meeting with. Uh, Many of us, who she called stakeholders within the party, mm-hmm. um, and myself, Winston Apple, and I think one or two other people tried to tell Claire, look, because she asked us, what do I have to do to win Missouri? Mm-hmm. And we tried to tell her, listen, you're going to have to listen to the people, mm-hmm. and the people want progressive policies. Yeah. And, and she basically blew us off. Oh, I don't know if that's what they want. <laughs> and then the election happened. She lost handily, yeah. and we passed the most, some of the most progressive ballot initiatives uh, in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so, I totally hear what you're saying. And Curtis, the other side of that is I really do think uh, the vast majority of, of independents 
want progressive policy. And there's a section of the GOP voters. I mean, these are voters that voted for Obama and then turned around and voted for Trump. They're looking for progressive policy. They need help. They have they have languished under severe income inequality now for decades. And they knew what they were going to get from Hillary Clinton, which was more bankster friendly policy. So whether or not we can talk about Trump being a liar and all of those things because he is. But that doesn't really acknowledge the underlying fundamental reasons that this happened. Well, yeah, it's not even about Trump being a liar. It's about the fact that there are people hurting yeah. in the United States. There are people that can't pay their bills. They can't put food on the table. They can't handle their insurance. They can't right. pay for health care. They can't pay for uh, uh, their their medication. Uh, they can't the, the schools. Schools yeah. in Missouri, and they're going to school for four days a week because they can't afford that fifth day. Wow. Uh, so, I mean, there's people in Missouri really Republican. Yeah. Uh, well, at least it has been because apparently Democrats have uh, an extremely damaged friend in Missouri. <laughs> yeah. And well, I've in only many been states, around yeah. yeah. I've only been uh, closely following politics in Missouri for 16. Before that, uh, uh, um, before the the sixteen debacle, uh, four years before that, I was a Ron Paul guy. Mm. Four years before that, I was a Barack Obama guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I'm I'm somebody that that has um, has a very independent uh, political thought process, and I feel their pain, mm-hmm. and I see where they're coming from. Because they don't have enough money to do all the things that they need to do. They don't have enough opportunity to do the things that they need to do for their family. And poverty looks the same regardless of if you're in inner city Philadelphia or if you're in a trailer park in the middle of Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, I mean, it, it really has become a situation where it's not even left versus right. It's rich versus poor. Yeah, and there's 100%. more poor than there are rich, and we're going to eventually win. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Curtis, that you say that, because I often say that the divide isn't vertical, it's horizontal, because I think that is the case. And I think, I mean, you see it now when you have a plurality of voters that support medical Medicare for all. That includes registered Republicans. They're, they aren't thinking to themselves evil socialism. They're thinking, this system makes more sense. I can't afford what we're doing now, all this profiteering inside our uh, health insurance, health insurance and big pharma and private hospitals, all these things, they can't afford it, you know, and this is life and death for a lot of folks. And in the very least, it's, you know, medical debt is the number one cause of of bankruptcy in the country. It's insane. Yeah, or people die. And I can speak to that for sure, because both of my parents, the parents that brought me up, my biological mother, my stepfather, both of them died within six years of each other. And had they been able to go to uh, continuing maintenance, like you do with your car when you change your oil, be able to go to a doctor, get checked up a couple times a year, they may still be with me. It's very painful. And I I see these things, and I I hear uh, independents, Republicans, Libertarians, Greens, all begging the Democratic Party, listen to us, and we will vote for you. That's right. And then I see certain people within the Democratic Party, a lot of people in leadership positions, refusing to listen. Yeah, 
So, um, all right. So what I'm, what I'm gathering from our conversation thus far is that maybe the problem isn't necessarily corruption per se, but it's this idea that these folks in leadership actually believe that they know better. There's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of that, but you can't prove to me that you know better, especially how to win elections. You can't be Claire McCaskill and sit on NBC and try to tell people in, in uh, the Midwest how you're going to win an election when yeah. she did so badly. Uh, right, but then I see so, they turn around and they, they blame the Republican voters, but it's like, no, you have to look at what you're doing. You're vote shaming. You're not listening to your constituents, and you're walking away from these districts by doing that. And I don't see how they don't see it. I completely hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. Well, they might see it, but their financial backers, their donors, their contributors can't allow them to move on it. Yeah. Won't allow them to move on it. Because if you institute things like a lot of Bernie's policies, then you are going to get into a situation where those massive corporations are going to lose money. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, then they won't have as much money to pump into the advertisement on the programs that's on CNN. Right. And MSNBC, um, and and you're you're coming down the food chain, all yeah. the way down the food chain. If you can take out some of those people at the top and start making them pay their fair share, uh, so they're going to fight that tooth and nail. Yes, the platonomy. I got an email. Sorry to interrupt. I got an email from uh, Milwaukee Democratic Party saying that they needed to raise seventy million dollars <laughs> for the DNC what? convention. Oh my God. Yeah, seventy million. And I have no idea where all that money is going to come from, but I have also no idea why they should need all of that money. I agree. Yeah, I don't don't see where they they don't need $70 million. That's crazy. Um, So let's talk a little bit on that note. Let's talk a little bit about Tom Perez and his 75 at-large delegates. Um, So... Now, one of the things that came out of the Unity and Reform Commission was that the superdelegates uh, were cut down, so there's not as many of them. There's a handful now, I guess. And they don't get to vote on the first round of voting at the convention. But it seems to me, I'm, I'm just learning this, I didn't know that Tom Perez was supposed to be making recommendations to the body and the body votes on these folks. I thought he's, because the way he behaves is that he's appointing these delegates and he's using them. We saw him use these delegates as proxy votes on Saturday to thwart the climate change debate resolution, resolution four. So what's going on with that? To the best of my understanding, for our rules and bylaws, unless I'm reading it, um, we are supposed to put forward um, recommendations to him. Um, he is supposed to kind of introduce his own recommendations, and then as a general body, we're supposed to elect those people. Um, and unfortunately, it, it just kind of gets ramrodded through, just like in Las Vegas, uh, when he appointed 75 at-large members, and uh, some of us in the, the unofficial bird caucus um drew issue with that and uh, stood in opposition and got completely railroaded um, because we just wanted some discussion on like five or six of his appointments and they 
just voted him in as a block. So that's how it's worked. I don't know that that's how it should be working. No, it's not working. And several of those folks are, again, are lobbyists as well. You have somebody from Sitco Petroleum that's an at-large. You have somebody from News Corp, which is kind of mind-numbing. That's Fox News as an at-large. So there's definitely folks in those positions. I mean, that's not quid pro quo. I I just got an email yesterday from Dr. James Ogby, and um, he, he mentioned that the at-large positions were only introduced to begin with to have uh, balance, uh, balance geographically, balance male and female, balance uh, uh, right in, in regions and um, you know whatever balance we needed and whatever voices we needed to to be heard on the DNC were the people that were supposed to be in those seats. Mm. Not lobbying. Not, not uh, CEOs. Right. Right. So that's a but very I mind interesting that I don't point. think lawyers need to be writing our laws. Right. Um, and there's a lot of laws on, on the DNC, too. Yeah, there is. So that's really interesting. So Jim's point is that they're being misused. Like these positions were generally created just to make to make sure that the uh, DNC body was diverse in its composition. But but you know clearly that's not how it's being used at this point. It's being used to thwart right. progressives. And that seems to be the case. So on that, that note, seems to be the case. And, and unfortunately, until. We can get more progressives elected to the DNC mm-hmm. by their state delegation. Um, there's not a whole lot we can do because we don't have the numbers yet. Right. I mean, if you look at, at two of the big votes that come to mind recently, uh, Tom Perez versus uh, Keith Ellison mm-hmm. was 200 to 225. Right. Um, and then the climate debate was 134 to 222. Yeah, and that includes the at-large delegates. It was actually quite close. I remember, you know, the the day of the uh, Saturday, that day, I was sitting in the back of the room, and we were getting text updates from you folks on the count. And I remember thinking, wow, it's actually pretty close. Maybe maybe we will prevail. Maybe uh, the conventional wisdom that we're going to lose is wrong. Like, I was almost anticipating that this might be a victory. And then all of a sudden, there was this massive... <laughs> shift in numbers and i was like what just happened and um the girl from uh, the gal from uh, climate hawks uh came back and talked to us and she said it was the proxy ballots of the at-large delegates yeah oh, so yeah that's the other thing i got too and it was extremely confusing that day because i was getting a lot of similar text messages that you were getting yeah uh saying hey we're in the lead hey we're losing Oh, back in the lead. We're yeah. losing. <laughs> um, and I was like, where's my popcorn? They're like, oh, we, we just got rammed. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, and, out. yeah, and the other thing he did that I thought was really infuriating was he actually told the DNC body how he was going to vote, as if he was telling everybody that they should be voting the same way. It was very offensive. A yes on this motion would strike the resolution number four from the report. A no on this motion would leave it in. So we have cleared the auditorium, correct? So please pass the ballot. 
you have a proxy, please hold out your proxy so staff can give you a uh, balance of that proxy as well. Uh, a yes on this motion would strike the resolution number four from the report. A no would retain uh, resolution number four in the report. So yes. Let's start the resolution. Vote no! 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 delegates. It seems to me that they are just as dangerous as the super delegates. Tulsi, can I ask an add-on question to that? 
that. Sure. I was just at the DNC meeting last week covering that, and I witnessed some of the lack of transparency that you're bringing up. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was that Tom Perez has uh, 75 at-large delegates that he appoints, and he was able to pull these out as proxy votes when he needed to to change the outcome of a vote. Um, so what do we need to do to fix this? Because obviously the, UR- the URC did not fix More it. people need to get involved in the process to be involved in those rule changes in the committee. You know, we we saw some changes come about post-2016 because you had a lot of folks who were really frustrated and angry about what happened, and they wanted to do something instructive about it. They ran for those local delegate positions. They ran for those positions on the state central committees. They ran for those national delegate positions so that they could have a seat at the table and bring about those changes and those reforms. That's what needs to happen. Yes, um, they're definitely a reason for concern. Um, I think that... We need to, to, moving forward, we need to be very mindful about our rules and bylaws and use them properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in order to, to really enforce that, we need more DNC members. We need more progressive DNC members. And I'm going to keep yelling at We need to actually, not myself, but other uh, delegates that were not happy with how things look in San Francisco have started a website. Mm. That's anewdnc.com, anewdnc.com, and it's just now being built, but uh, that that's the goal of it, is to try to get more progressives on the DNC, to give people a clear path uh, to be able to step up and become leaders within their own state. I think that's a great idea. What is the website address again? anewdnc.com. Okay, so a new dnc.com. Okay, I'll put that in the bio. We're not calling it. It's actually spelled right. Okay. It's not like a n u, it's a n e w dnc.com. Awesome. So now you just also resigned your position on the county committee and the state committee. What was the reasons for this? Well, um, twofold. One, I'm moving about 10 minutes, about 10 miles from where I live right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to put me just outside the districts that I represent. Um, so I couldn't think of a better time to uh, step down from both the state and county committees uh, who had bylaws that would prevent members from uh, endorsing a presidential candidate mm-hmm. because on both of those, the state and the county, uh, it's a 75% majority if there's an incumbent. Mm. So otherwise, there's no incumbent this year. Uh, the state nor the county should uh, be endorsing. But as a DNC member, I can't. Right. Okay. So I stepped up my state committee, my county committee, and I have now endorsed Bernie Sanders from the DNC. That's fantastic. So so that allowed you to do the DNC endorsement. That makes sense, actually. Yes. So let me ask yeah, you another question. Yeah. You have been a very uh, loud advocate for the Dem Enter movement, and I see the wisdom in this. Um, we, Whether we like it or not, we are a two-party system in the country. And I say this as someone who has voted, has voted third party several times, and I would do so again. But that doesn't change the reality of the dynamics that are at play, especially on the uh, presidential level. But a lot of folks are so irritated and disgusted that they've Dem exited, right? So what yeah. what kind of an argument would you give to these folks to get them to come back? Because I really believe that we need them to come back if we're going to 
reform the DNC and get the change pushed through that we need? Well, my pitch for that would just be that uh, you're going to have to become the Democratic Party. You're going to have to take over every seat possible because we do exist in a two-party system right now. Um, and if you want things like uh, uh, election or um, voting rights for everyone or uh, ranked choice voting, then you're going to have to get involved in the Democratic Party because we do exist in a two-party system. Mm -hmm. And if you want to change that fact, if you want to open the two-party system to more voters, mm -hmm. then you're going to have to get involved in one of the two parties and you're going to have to change the rules from the inside. Yeah. And that's really the only way that you can change these things is from the bottom up, from the inside. Uh, and, and you know, and while everyone else was running out of the building in 2016, I was running in. Yeah. Um, and, and as 14 million registered Dem Democrats left the party, mm -hmm. um, I, I was taking six seats in my first year. Um and then in three, at my third year, uh, I took another seat. So I had seven seats within the party. Wow. Um, within my first three years. And if that's not an example that reform can happen, right. uh, I don't know what is. Yeah, no, so you've I, been I a game buster. I for the then enter movement because I was doing it. Mm-hmm. No, you were, and you've been very successful, um, and I think that's really good advice, because the reality is, even if, I got, how do you, how are we ever going to, um, how are we ever going to work inside a two-party system if we're trying to only be outside of the party? I, I do think that the folks outside of the party, the third-party voters, the independents, I think they do serve a purpose as well, because they can push policy in a certain direction as they try to woo um, candidates to, um, you know, because they have to earn votes, right? So I do think there's that. I don't know, because I don't know if it sways at all from the outside, because I'm on the inside having a problem swaying. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's so here, true. That's here's true. the thing is that here's the comparison that I make. You can either uh, stand on the outside of the building yelling and throwing rocks, or you can walk into the front door of the building and sit at the table where your voice can be heard. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. And once your voice is heard and they keep, you know, they're going to try, look, power and um, money aren't going to give up this fight easily. It's going to be difficult. So folks can't get easily discouraged. We have to keep going. We have made inroads. Anyone, look, I mean, I think the, um, the current state of the presidential campaigns in this country are a testament to that. Everybody is trying to co-opt Bernie's policies. Now, of course, they're doing lighter weight, watered down versions that maybe can placate their corporate donors, but they have absolutely had to push their policy more to the left in response to what he has done. Well, that's because they're seeing that that's what the, the people are getting behind. That's exactly. what the groundswell dictates. Yeah, 100%. Um, and to me, I, I think that people are going to realize that as far as it seems like Bernie goes, that's still only going to be about halfway of where we're going to become as a country. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a step towards a better future. Right. So, I mean, eventually I'm going to I'm going to look out 
my window and I'm going to see driverless cars and I'm going to see driverless trailers uh, delivering uh, uh, yeah. lawnmowers. Yeah. Hey, you know, driverless trailer, pull up to your house, deliver a lawnmower that operates like a Roomba, cuts your lawn, mm-hmm. puts itself back on the trailer and drives away. Yeah. That's the future that we're looking at, but we're not going to get there if we don't take a step in that direction. Right. So um, on that note, I'm actually curious to know if you support UBI, not necessarily the Andrew Yang version that replaces welfare programs, but in addition to, like, would as as strictly a tech dividend, sort of like the way Alaska has the oil dividend, would you support a UBI policy that just gave everybody a certain amount of money each month? Well, we're going to have to do that at some point if we stay on a monetary system. Yeah. Um, okay. Because unfortunately, unless we stop and and go out of our way to stifle innovation, mm-hmm. then we're looking at a future where human beings work far less hours. That's right. We're looking at a at a future where human beings might not work. Yeah. Because yeah, we're going to build the machines that are going to take our jobs. Yep. And so I look at somebody like Andrew Yang, and I appreciate that he's speaking the truth. Yeah. Listen, yeah. he says, I got friends in Silicon Valley right now that are trying to take all of your jobs, and they're trying to do it within the next three to ten years. Mm-hmm. All of your jobs. Yeah. I, I used to travel um, and escort oversized loads, and those truck drivers would always tell me, no machine's ever going to take a truck driver's job. But there are trucks out on the road right now yeah. taking truck driver jobs. Yeah. Yeah, they I think have all we kinds need to look for the future. And if we don't figure out a way to maintain the needs of people, we're going to be looking at a dystopian future. We're going to be looking at a Mad Max future. And that's not a future I want to live. That's not a future I want my daughter to have to survive in. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. So, uh, Curtis, you ran for state rep in a heavy, what would be considered a heavily Republican district in 2016 as well. And I think you secured over 35 percent of the vote, which is a pretty good showing. Um, and you spent very little money. So to me, that's that tells me that maybe you should run again now that you have some name recognition and people, voters in the, in the area would know who you are. Is that something you are considering or would consider? Well, I, I never say never as far as what the future may hold. Uh, my focus for 2020 is to ensure that Bernie Sanders gets elected. Yeah. Uh, so I don't plan on running in 2020. I want to focus all my energy on that and on building uh, maybe a progressive movement in Missouri because uh, there are progressives here. Like you said, I, I ran for my first time in 2016, and in that race, I... Got thirty six percent of the vote, but less than six thousand dollars, which is amazing. Uh, which was great, especially considering that I had never had any uh, political experience whatsoever before that. Right. Two years later, two thousand eighteen, I got forty one percent of the vote with about fifteen thousand dollars, and in both of those races, my opponent had close to uh, one. He had over a hundred thousand mm. dollars, and in eighteen, he had around eighty eight thousand. Wow. And I was able to get 41% of that vote. Uh, when, in my district, two years before I ran, in, in 2014, the Republican opposition got 12 votes. Not 12%, 12, 12 votes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, wow. yeah, I think that, that I did fairly well. 
However, yeah. coming from a pro wrestling background, I had a foot up on some candidates right. as far as self-promoting, as far as marketing, as far as uh, being a little bit known. Uh, even now, I, it just sounds bad that I had somebody send me screenshots of Google, uh, and I had over a million uh, page views or whatever at the top. Yeah. My opponents got less than 250,000. Wow. So I, I was a little bit more well-known. Uh, for other things before I got involved in politics. Right. But well, let's talk about that for a second. So, what kind of lessons um, were you able to bring to the political arena from wrestling? Because pro wrestling is definitely, um, you know, there's some crossover ideas, I think, in the sense that when you're talking about marketing and being able to uh, publicly speak to people and being able to respond to an audience, I mean, all of these things. But what, what, uh, what would you pinpoint as some of the greatest lessons you brought to the table in politics. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Curtis Wilde, and I am running to be your state representative for Missouri House District 107. I am an unabashed progressive, which means I am going to fight for health care for all, education for all, criminal justice reform, higher wages, stronger labor unions, and sustainability across the board. But I am also here to be an alternative. I am here to be an alternative to politicians in Jefferson City that would tell you our schools are fully funded, while some schools in rural Missouri only go to school for four days a week because they can't afford that fifth day. They can't afford transportation, educators, school lunches. I am here to be an alternative to a party that would tell you they care about the elderly while voting to kick nearly 63,000 seniors off their prescription medications. I am here to be an alternative to a party that wants absolutely no regulations on firearms, but they will regulate and legislate a woman's body and her reproductive choices. I am here to fight for you, ladies and gentlemen, because I don't have the big money special interest. I don't have dark money, and I don't have billionaires pulling my strings. I am a people-powered grassroots campaign, while for the people always has been and always will be. And I ask for your vote on November 6th to come out and to vote wild. Put people before profit. Put Main Street before Wall Street and human need ahead of corporate greed. I ask for your vote November 6th so we can create a Missouri to believe in. Well, I think you mentioned a couple of them, uh, public speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a number one fear of most people and I have no problem doing it mm -hmm. um, so that was a, a big feather in my cap as far as that's concerned the, um, the being able to take note of your crowd and uh, kind of flow with them came from pro wrestling and in my professional wrestling career I, I wrestled in uh, six different states, but I've also wrestled on local television in four major metropolitan regions. Mm. And doing TV, you get one shot. Right. You get one opportunity, so it's a, a lot like politics. you got your four minutes on the stage. Mm -hmm. Do the best you can do. Yeah. <laughs> Talk no to pressure. these people, speak to these people, feel these people, and, and respond. Um, and that came out of professional wrestling. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so you're going to the uh, 2020 DNC convention for uh, where we're going to uh, elect our candidate for president. Uh, one of the things I noticed 
is they have really put some of the hotels where the delegates are supposed to be staying out far away from the convention. Like some of it looks like it's a good three hour drive. What's going on well, with that? Our hotel is in Rosemont, Illinois, which is uh, the part of this block of hotel. Yeah, it's in another state. Uh, we're in there with a number of, of other state parties, so we're not alone. So it's an hour and a half drive. It's a three-hour round trip. And that's not even considering if you take the train or uh, uh, a shuttle, a bus. The timing that I'm seeing on that, the trip would take even longer one way. So I have no idea who dealt with the logistics of this. Yeah. Uh, but for a poor white boy from the Midwest, it, it's uh, uncanny how, how they are doing this. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're supposed to be able to get sleep and, and still have that kind of travel space. And be at the convention all day. This doesn't. This is really a bad planning. I think um, I was really surprised. Yeah, to see it. I was in Philadelphia in 2016, and I guess that spoiled me, or I wouldn't be uh, as as you know rubbed the wrong way with this. So mm-hmm. uh, we could walk out of our hotel in Philadelphia, walk a block down. That was the train. You hop on the train. The train was a seven mile trip down to the convention center. You get off the train a block away from the convention center, and there you are. Right. Uh, this is going to be three-hour round trip, and that's every day. It's crazy. Um, so, but I can't are, say that they're sorry. just doing it to red states, because I do believe California and Washington are also in Rosemont. <laughs> It's just, it's too far though. And it's, you know, I don't understand why they couldn't, there are hotel rooms available uh, in Milwaukee because I was able to book one. So I just don't understand why, why they're doing that. It seems very weird. It, it, well, it is weird. Um, it, it's weird that they wouldn't have uh, booked every hotel room in Milwaukee and designed designated hotel rooms for the yeah. state party. Um, yeah, exactly. it, 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 The email that I got has like five bullet points of why they're doing it. One of them was to ensure that they have full-service hotels, uh, whatever that means. Whatever I'm that good with means, a super yeah. They provide breakfast. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, there, there were a number of reasons that they chose to do it this way, and none of them really made sense to me, hmm. especially one in particular, um, the state of Illinois yeah. isn't even at Rosebud. It's not in Illinois. Hmm. It's crazy. So the Illinois State Democratic Party will not be in Illinois <laughs> when they could have just stayed at Rosebud. Um, and the, the other issue uh, that I, I draw with it is some of the hotels that they're putting us in are really high dollar. And yeah. uh, I, I know experience of being a state delegate uh, was going to skip being a national delegate because I had my my uh, campaign in 2016 but then I got elected to the DNC and had to go anyway mm-hmm. but I saw all the other state delegates, all the other national delegates having to raise like $4,000 each wow, yeah. for Philadelphia yeah I believe it expensive, uh, very expensive like that this year 
then that's either poor planning or an attempt to keep poor people from planning. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I think Curtis is a really good point. So I wanted to ask you also, what, what are some of the highlights of last, uh, of last week's DNC meeting? What, what, what things would you say were the most important things that happened? Well, I mean, I got to meet you. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for me, it was extremely memorable uh, because of the, the people. And I was always told um, growing up, you are who you surround yourself with. And for me, it was memorable because that particular meeting, I was surrounded by people like Larry Cohen and Nina Turner and Dr. Jim Zogby. Um, you know, Jane Cleave and all these powerhouses. Um, so to just be sitting at those tables was super, super important for me, super memorable for me. Um, I think what came out of it that's important for most people is that we are now seeing how certain things are done on the DNC. And we're taking notes <laughs> and we're remembering and uh, you know, they, they may know the rules and they, uh, know the landscape a little better than us, but every mile that we walk, we're learning. And as we learn, we're going to start being able to beat them by their own game or at their own game by their own rules. What came out of this is that yeah. people are seeing that there are ways to, to put chinks in the armor of the establishment. Right. So do you have any specific ideas yourself about uh, what kind of reform needs to happen? Oh, no, I try not to come up with any ideas on my own. Really? No, I'm kidding. I think you'd be good at that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> For a second, I was like, wait, really? Because well, I think you'd be really good at that. <laughs> well, there are quite a few. There are quite a few ways that we could reform, says uh, the National Committee specifically. And um, those are, are one by tackling the at-large delegates that are able to uh, sway the vote yeah. one way or another. Um, two, we have to to start ensuring that people know how to take their seats on the DNC. Um, I honestly didn't know. I, I just had a great Bernie delegation in Missouri yeah. that was willing to get behind me when the time was right, and um, I stood up for them when the time was right, and. It was a perfect storm. So that's how we unseated four establishment DNC members and replaced them with four Bernie Bernie superdelegates at the time until we voted out the term superdelegate. So uh, my path may be a little bit different than other people's, but if we can figure out a way to educate each state on how to put people on the DNC, how to elect people, Mm-hmm. to the DNC, then the DNC is going to change. I, I, I said from 16, and I'm saying it now, the party is made of people. If we change the people, we change the party. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, so now let's talk, you know, you did bring about dealing with the at-large delegates, and we talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the podcast so you had a situation, I believe, where you had made a recommendation for a uh, DNC at large 
and Tom Perez more or less ignored what you guys were saying? And what was that situation about? Well, we were trying to submit uh, Valdez Bravo, who was the second vice chair in Wyoming, mm-hmm. um, uh, until he stepped down from that seat in order to spend a little more time with his family and whatnot. Uh, we were trying to elect him to the DNC as an at-large member, mm-hmm. and basically Tom said, you recommended Valdez to me, you didn't recommend Valdez to the DNC. I took Valdez under advisement and decided against him. Oh, but next time, you should be recommending people to the DNC. But there were not... Uh, ways to recommend to the DNC. Mm -hmm. They didn't give us any recommendation form for the at-large delegate, uh, other than the ones that were going directly to Tom. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So, now we know, now we know that game. Yeah, that's a game, right? It's a chess move. (laughs) Now we know that move. And because we know that move, we can use that move to our advantage and make sure that next time we nominate correctly. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and it seems to me that that's being really... being told that it's incorrect, but we're not sure about that either. Well, it's just disingenuous of Tom Perez to do that. Like, if you had given him a rec form with a recommendation and he thought it was more appropriate for you to be recommending it to the DNC body, he should have said so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and, I mean... That was never really covered in the emails. Well, it was covered in the emails extensively were the rules for the... Um, Oh, I want to say Tennessee, Alabama. Um, there was a, a new election because I guess that they, they decertified <laughs> the chair and vice chair. I was there for that. Um, yeah, so basically, we can talk about that for a second. Uh, she had, she had, uh, she got defrocked for, I don't know what the correct term is, of her credentials by the credentials committee during the meeting. But then in the uh, rules and bylaws uh, meeting, she, there was a challenge against her delegate selection plan because basically the plan uh, did not mirror the composition of the state as far as uh, minority representation. So there wasn't enough minority seats in the delegate selection plan to match the populations inside the state. So she was, so it was racist. I mean, I don't know how else you would want to put that. Thank you everyone. I'm Ralph Young, I'm from Alabama. And, um, sorry, can you hear me there now? Sorry. We can hear you. If you're comfortable and able to do it, I'm going to ask you to stand oh. so that people kind of know where the voice is coming from. Excellent. Okay. Hi. Hi. I'm Ralph Young. I'm the challenger from Alabama. Um, we have a large class. Mr. Rucko is also a representative for the group. Uh, I brought this challenge because there are still substantial irregularities in the voting behaviors of our state party and with the makeup of our uh, Democratic Party in that minorities are getting short shrift to quote the findings of the Credentials Committee. Um, Those continue to be issues in our state. And I would like to pass the microphone over to my co-counsel to um, further discuss this. Um, during earlier in the day, you know, she had when she had spoken, she actually referred to uh, uh, African American African American folks as "quote unquote" the blacks. I kid you not. Um, 
And what slayed me though, Curtis, was this rules and bylaws session. I sat there for almost two hours and it was like watching the Keystone Cops because nobody wanted to make a decision about just rejecting the plan and and telling them they needed to have a new state elected chair and all of it because there was also some irregularities in the election apparently so they just Mm -hmm. sort of passed the buck and said well we'll leave it unresolved which was just like are you kidding me yeah that's one of their jobs is to resolve that (laughs) uh yeah so when you get a chance watch the video you'll just be shaking your head but um so that's what's going on with that. So what do they do if they don't accept the delegate selection plan and they shouldn't from what I, given what I was heard, what happens, you know, we're coming up really close now to when the states will be running their caucuses for their delegates. And what are they going to do if they don't have a plan in place? I'm assuming that they will just go with the, um, screwed up uh, one. Pre- the previous plan, that whatever worked for them the last time didn't okay. work. It's yeah. probably what they'll go. Yes, sir. Don't quote me because I'm really not sure. Yeah, no, they don't. They're not. See, that's the thing. That's the thing, Curtis. They're never really clear on what. You, it's hard to understand sometimes what's going on because they they're not always upfront about the facts or what you know. And you really have to be a parliamentarian and get really deep into the woods into all of the rules and bylaws, etc. If you really want to understand how the DNC um, functions and and you know. I think that may be by design to control the membership 100%. And, and to keep everybody in line. Yeah, no, I agree. It's by design. And, you know, they you guys are all volunteers, more or less. You're not getting paid. It's not a job. So what are you supposed to devote 40 hours a week to learning all of this information in order for you to be effective? It just doesn't seem right. It seems disingenuous. Yeah. Yeah. does not seem right. That's yeah. definitely true. Um, and uh, contrived. It's this way for a reason, uh, and that reason is usually to keep any internal uprise from happening, um, which I, I don't think I'll ever understand. No, me because neither. we're meant to be here to represent the people, right? Uh, and and when we lose sight of that, the people lose sight of us, and they don't want us to represent them. That's right. And um, then we lose party membership. That, that sounds it's, like cruel suicide to me. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's political suicide. We lose part. This is how we have lost so much party membership. I mean, the, I think it's we're down to what, 26% of the population registered voters is uh, now Democratic. So that's that's mm-hmm. not a majority. That's not we're near a majority of, of our population. So it's something that we really need to look like, I think, look at as a party. So what are some of the other reform ideas that you um, had before we kind of digressed into the Alabama thing? Well, we need to make sure that regular people can get in there and represent regular people. Mm -hmm. Um, When you've got people like lobbyists and and, uh, corporate CEOs and all of these people that do not reflect the the even values or morals of everyday Americans, yeah. then you're not going to be reflective of, of their needs and their desires. And uh, when you do that, you, you just keep losing. Yeah. So we've got to make changes on the DNC. We've got to make it to where people, to where, one, it's easier to become a member of the DNC and, and the Democratic Party. Yeah. And two, make it to where those people have the education necessary mm-hmm. that once they get there, 
they can hit the ground running. Uh, yeah, and I they can, I mean, all this stuff needs to be laid in the term. Mm-hmm. You know, they, like you said, they're, they're, uh, you almost need to be a parliamentarian to understand some of it. <laughs> Um, and I don't understand how when folks to Americans see layman's terms, mm-hmm. our rules and bylaws aren't layman's terms. No, they're not. No, they're not. Even I mean, resolutions. Yeah. It's... Even resolutions. Whereas your resolution is really confusing. Yeah. Whereas your resolution doesn't make sense. Yeah. Whereas I don't understand this resolution. Be it resolved, I'm not going to pay attention to it. Right, right, right. It's, yeah. it's totally true. I mean, some so of the funny. people listening might not understand that, but that's how resolutions are written. Yeah, 100%. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's definitely not in common parlance, that's for sure. Um, so, no, and I think you're right. It, they do need to make it easier. Uh, what about what about if activists um, decided to run for a lot of, like, you know, the, the uh, committee, the county committee, um, state committee party chairs, like these, some of these will put you automatically in a DNC position. And I don't know that a lot of uh, leftists realize that, that it's, you know, you just get to I don't think that they do. That's what I'm talking about with the education. Yeah, We have to educate our progressives. We have to make sure that they realize that all you have to do in, in most cases, like in Missouri, to run for the state party chair, yeah. The, the top dog of the Democrats in Missouri to run for the chair. You just have to be a registered Democrat with your dues paid. Mm-hmm. And then if you state you're running, you run a campaign where you try to reach out to the state committee members and get them on your side. Mm-hmm. And then you give a speech. And if people like you more, they vote for you. That's right. That's how it works. Yeah, that's and how it works. You go yeah. from being an activist to the chair of a state party in a day. That's right. You know, and another suggestion is, you know, t- uh, I think it's different from state to state, but here, for example, in California in 2020, we are electing our new county committees. So they're on the same ballot as the presidential election. So, you know, people should really consider getting in on those races. Uh, you know, a lot of times people don't necessarily vote for the county committee spots. They see this on the ballot and they skip it because they don't understand it. But enough people will understand that. And, you know, there's not there's generally not a lot of people that run for these positions because they just don't know about it. And I think it's a really it could be a really effective way for uh, leftists uh, to, again, infiltrate, dem enter the party and, and get into positions where they can make decisions. That that's exactly it. how it's done. Yeah. 100%. That's exactly how it's done. I mean, uh, I fall backwards into the DNC by the, the, the Bernie delegation just saying, hey, who wants to run for the DNC? I said, I'll do it. What's the DNC? Yeah. And they explained to me what the DNC was. I was like, all right. I filled out some betting paperwork. I didn't hear anything back. I was about 20 minutes late to the Bernie delegation meeting that took place right before the state convention. Right. Uh, and once I got there, they rushed me to the stage. I got on the stage, looked at the person next to me, and said, why am I here? They said, oh, you've been nominated to the DNC. You're That's on our so slate. That's awesome. <laughs> And then I I walk into my state and I'm going to nominate someone else for the seat on my state committee. And we go to to go into that meeting and I look at him and say, hey, I'm going to nominate you today for the state committee. And he's like, no, I'm going to move to Florida. (laughs) I said, so what are we going to do? He's like, I don't know. You can do whatever you want to do. And I looked over at my wife and said, well, you can nominate me if you want to. There you go. And then she nominated me and I won. That's awesome. I love that story. 
our our county committee. We showed up to the county committee the first uh, time that we showed up to the county committee. They uh, got to know us a little bit. I think it was the second time that they said, "Hey, we've got seats available on the committee where you live. Do you guys want them?" Yeah. We said, "Sure, we'll take them." Yeah. And then they voted on it, and we were on the central committee. That's great. Um, two years later, I, I moved five miles to where I was still in my legislative district, uh, and I lost two of my seats. Uh, well, my wife lost her seat. I lost a seat on the central committee, and someone who was in the township that I moved to on the central committee representing my township that I, I was moving to stepped down and gave me their seat. Um, because in, in their words, they needed workers in that seat and not just bodies. Um, so, yeah, you saw a lot of before you know it, you're going to start getting seats. You're going to start being listened to. You're going to start being heard. You're going to start being able to rewrite the rules and rewrite the, the bylaws. Um, and it's not until then that they're really going to hear you. Unfortunately, that's how it works. So, show up and give a shit, and people will see that. Um, just like like my one of my counterparts from Missouri said at the DNC meeting when she was talking about the River Rat Democrats. Their motto, our motto, show up and give a shit. And most show of the people that are... Show up and give a shit is a great are, motto. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, most of the people that, that would be called River Rat Democrats in Missouri... Yeah. Are now on their central committee and That's their right. state committee. Yeah. That's so, right. if if you want change, you got to be willing to show up and make it because yeah. nobody's going to do it for you. Yeah, nobody's going to hand us change. That's for sure. We're working against a very powerful plutonomy in the country, so we definitely have to show up, give a shit, and take it back. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and that's really all you have to. Do. And unfortunately, one of the other reforms that I would I would suggest would be making uh, these positions less cost prohibitive mm. for average Americans. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. Because there are dues. No, there are yes, dues yeah. involved in these things. Just to be on my state committee, it's $200 a year. Wow. The DMC is $500 a year. Oh, I didn't know that. Is it really $500? Yeah, and you got to make it to all these five-star hotels that they book these things at. Yeah, you know, that's not right. I have a problem with that. It is, they do try to put the poorer folk at a distance. And I think it's a real problem with the Democratic Party in general. There's there's like a whole fa faction of wealthy Democrats that have no problem poor shaming or not giving a shit about um, the working poor in this country. And it really bothers me because our roots as a party at one time were with the working class. You know, that's what we were about. FDR policy was all about dealing with poverty and giving a leg up to the working class. And we need to return to those roots. That's Well, that's what our whole party is based on. And the fact that yeah. certain aspects are cost prohibitive it's just is wrong. an issue. Yeah, it's an issue. It's not right. I agree. That's It's totally not uh, right. I'll tell you right now, I would not be able to get to all the DNC meetings that I get to if I didn't have... Uh, at least one great supporter who happens to have a lot of shy miles, uh, oh, awesome. and if I yeah. didn't, if I didn't get a little 
type in for my central committee to go out for the DNC meetings. Yeah. Uh, and and just for that, they have to, to do a vote of the, the county central committee just to approve that. Jeez. And uh, without that, I wouldn't be able to get to the DNC meetings that I bet you. Right. I mean, they've only done it a couple times. Before that, I was putting the bill until I realized that they were willing to. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm going to ask if they have it and are willing to help, given that I'm the, the first DNC member from St. Charles County uh, since the 80s. Hmm. They were willing to step up and do that. Yeah, no, that's important stuff. Um, I think, well, look, I mean, I think there's enough of us out there that hear what you're saying and agree with it. So it is an area of focus that we need to look at. I think they need to be uh, less cost prohibitive in the way they structure these things. I mean, why would you schedule I mean, here's a here's a glaring example, Curtis. Why would you schedule schedule a DNC meeting in San Francisco to begin with? San Francisco is one of the most expensive cities in the country. You can yeah. pick any other city. Why San Francisco? I will never forget the fact that I spent $6.34 on a Sprite. Yeah. Holy shit. $6 for a Sprite? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, it's bad. I mean, you know, I live in the state of California, and even even I was like, this is costly. I, you know, why are they doing this? Yeah. And I have no idea why they're doing other than the uh you know trying to, to keep people who are of a different socioeconomic standpoint are yeah. standing away from situations like that right and it was, like i said it was all the way in california had i not had somebody with sky mile my central committee uh throw me a little bit of money yeah um which was about equal to the money that i spent just on the room not including my expenses right um I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I shared the room. I'll tell you what, in 16, I wasn't going to go out to Philadelphia. I ended up getting elected to the DNC. And then I I got a hold of a couple of the national delegates and asked if I could crash in their room. And I was probably the only DNC member, elected DNC member, that was sleeping on a floor in Philadelphia. I, you know, I, I don't doubt that. Um, it's crazy. So I want to also bring up, because um, I love this, your daughter was in this really fantastic viral video um, where she had memorized a speech that Nina Turner gave and was able to lip sync with it verbatim, like perfectly. Um, Senator Sanders stood up when he didn't have to stand up as a young man. The way to define the character of a person is what they do when the cameras are not on, what they do when they don't benefit from it personally. He is a champion for civil rights and social justice in this country. The time is right and the cause is now. Song called Our Revolution from Tony Chaik. Yep. 
who you can follow on Twitter at Mr. Tony Tig. And she heard it enough times that she started speaking along with uh, Nina Turner's spoken word portion of that song. Um, and my wife was sitting in the passenger seat, and she just whipped her phone around and started recording. <laughs> and she did it verbatim. We were both pretty shocked that she did it so well. Uh, so I texted it to Nina, and uh, and Chrissy sent it to. Um, so, or no, we shared it on social media. The campaign caught wind of it, and then they asked if they could use it uh, in their their audio video department. So they made a little video out of it of a side by side with our daughter and Nina. That's awesome. Um, and that's on on their Twitter, their Facebook, their YouTube, their uh, uh, Instagram. And she's she's probably gotten well over a million views just oh, on yeah. that. So oh, she yeah. went way more viral than either of us have ever went. So. <laughs> well, to be honest, she's very adorable. <laughs> she is. She is. And she was missing her, her front two teeth. So yeah, that dude, that's right. It's just, it's just very cute. When I saw it, and this was before we met, obviously, when I saw it, I was like. And then when I talked to Chrissy, your wife, I was like, wait, that's your daughter? <laughs> So great. Yeah. It's so great. Yeah. I love that. And the that, Tony that was Tig the song was great. We, got, we met with uh, some of the people from the Bernie campaign when we were in San Francisco. Right. And my wife started talking to Anna Lilia, who is the um, uh, political director, the national political director for Bernie 2020. And it just came up that that was our daughter, and she was shocked by it, too. She's like, oh, that's your daughter? That she is... Uh, just She's so, cute. so popular within yeah. the Bernie office. Yeah. From what we hear. Oh yeah, unbelievable. So, yeah, because I mean, it really is the first time I saw. I was like, "What is this adorableness?" <laughs> <laughs> the part I love the best out of it is there. There's a part when Nina says, "The time is now." Yeah. And when she says that, and my daughter says it at the same time, you should look at the look in my daughter's eyes. Yeah. That fire. That fire tells yeah. me that I could be gone tomorrow, but the change that I'm fighting for is going to live on. So great, yeah. So great. It's a great speech, <laughs> too. It's such a great speech. Um, yeah. Anyway, what yeah, would top, be... Top notch, but it's Nina Turner. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the worst thing about a Nina Turner speech is having a follower. <laughs> Actually, uh you're totally 100% correct. And it was so funny. Uh, I, when Bernie was here a couple weeks ago in LA, he actually said that. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't shock me. In Las Vegas, I think it was Las Vegas. I had to, to follow her. And the whole time that I was speaking, I, I really just wanted to put the microphone down and say, just like, <laughs> turn, ladies and gentlemen, enter. <laughs> just put the mic down. Walk away. <laughs> yeah, how do you, yeah, seriously, how do you follow Nina? She's such a passionate speaker. Uh, she's just, she really is able to grab the audience. And, you know, and a big part of that, I think, is her authenticity. Um, you know, that's, she's, re that is really, this is really who she is, you know? Yeah, I think authenticity and likability are extremely underrated in politics. 100%, I agree. If you're, if you're real and what you say is something that, that people believe and feel, that's powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. You don't have to lie to people. Right. Just speak with passion and vigor about the things that they're concerned about. Yeah. 
and let them know that you're genuine and you are authentic, that you are going to fight for those things and you're going to fight against those things. Yeah. And, you know, for the good things, against the bad things. Um, right. So I, I think that that's why Cena is so popular because she is a lot like Bernie in the way that when she opens her mouth, you know that she believes what she says. Mm-hmm. This is true. Yeah. I mean, it's really unbelievable authenticity. So also, I want to get really quickly, um, Curtis, if folks want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? At Curtis Wild. C-U-R-T-I-S-W-Y-L-D-E. That was in Larry D is in David, E is in Edward. That's also my name on Facebook. Uh, but you can type in Curtis Wild, Progressive Democrat behind it, because I, I'm pretty sure I'm at my 5,000 friend limit. <laughs> so they can follow and me Instagram. on the page. Instagram, they can follow me on Instagram, Curtis Wild, same name. And if they want to send me an email, that's CurtisWild at Yahoo.com. That's how long I've had the name. I nice. didn't even have to add any dashes or numbers. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> my original, you might laugh at this. My original, I have my, um, have had my Yahoo address for so long that my original password was only four letters. And I finally got an email from Yahoo last year saying, you really need to update your password. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to figure this out. Although, know, right? Right? considering that you have to have like eight letters and a digit and a, exclamation point or whatever. Um, now, those four letters may be something that nobody would ever get. Exactly. It's too simple.